1: Welcome to Would You Miss This Week, I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. Would you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We've spent a lot of time talking about the various bottlenecks in the economy. Some areas like lumber seem to have cooled down a little bit, but this week we looked at one area that has shown no signs of getting better, and that's global shipping. A common industry measure of container rates between Hong Kong and Los Angeles has surged to its highest level in years, maybe ever. So we got some perspective from someone in the business and spoke with Anton Posner, CEO of the Mercury Group. And we asked Anton what his firm does and what the big challenges facing his clients are right now. Uh,
2: Thanks for having me on, Joe. We focus on the supply chain and logistics, global logistics for industrial commodities. So steel, metals, uh, ores, uh, agricultural commodities, uh, moving them around the world for trading companies, producers, banks that are involved in uh, commodity trade. So uh, supply chain management focus, right?
3: Supply chain management focus. And he- they must be pulling their hair out, their clients, at the moment. There's a great story on the terminal. Out-of-control shipping costs, far up. One one toy manufacturer in the U.K. called The Entertainer he said, in 40 years of toy retailing, I've never known such challenging conditions from the point of view of pricing. Now, he's having to, like, stop stocking a certain kind of teddy bear because it would double in price, Anton. How much are you seeing these prices go through the roof?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Caroline, we're seeing uh, astronomical uh, jump and daily, uh, just daily uh, fluctuations on what's uh, what's happening in the markets. Uh, if you look uh, look at our the focus on the types of commodities that we're moving, which are on the metals and raw material side, industrial commodities, we're seeing uh, let's say the ships that are carrying those those types of commodities, handy size uh, bulk vessels, have tripled in cost for a oh. daily hire rate. So uh, a few months, ag- several months ago, a ship. Uh, that would carry steel from the far east to the united states for example was uh, running at about ten thousand dollars a day for a hire or leasing the ship essentially in layman's terms now we're seeing over thirty thousand dollars plus per day for those for those ships to take a ship on uh, on time charter on uh, long-term lease so of course that's well. filtering down to the per ton cost of freight that's uh going into the aluminum the copper right the the steel that uh is going into the consumer goods that uh people are buying so we're seeing it on the shelves essentially Right.
1: so i mentioned in the intro that there are areas of supply chains commodities bottlenecks that have shown some signs of maybe easing a little bit And it's not dramatic right. but maybe over the worst of it, it doesn't look like that hmm. is there are is there any light at the end of the tunnel are there or what's it going to take to start to see that number uh, ease a little
2: bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Joe. You know, the big big question, right, this week we saw China intervene on, uh, on the copper side by releasing right, copper right. national stockpiles to try to ease pressure on commodity markets. It's going to, it, until there is a, a downward pressure on the commodity, uh, commodity uh, pricing in the market, Overall, we're not going to see much happening on at least on the industrial, certainly on the industrial commodity uh, supply supply chain side. Right. Retail focuses on container you know, container ships, of course, energy commodities focus on the tanker markets. But but everything is uh, is heating is still hot right now. So a little downward pressure this week with China jumping in with some of the downward pressure on agricultural commodities, uh, feds uh, comments uh, today on interest rates. Uh, certainly uh, helped. But when is the when is this going to end? Mm. Uh, good question. I'd like to know the answer to oh, that. Uh, <laughs> I thought you to, were going to tell us. Uh, yeah. If I knew the answer to that, I'd be uh, I'd be buying uh, some uh, some future, uh, some yeah. interesting future contracts, futures <laughs> contracts, derivatives right
3: now. <laughs> uh, to that end, like how are you trying to he- hedge this out to a certain extent? And mm. what, what are you having to put in place to try and alleviate some of the yeah. pressures you're experiencing?
2: Sure. And Caroline, the, the big thing is communication with our clients, making sure that they're not stuck out there, uh, uh, not letting them execute trades and purchases without having the proper freight support at this point. So getting that point across to our clients is key to, to to work in lockstep right now to make sure that if they're going to pull the trigger on a trade, if they're going to buy aluminum, they're going to make buy steel, they're going to pull the trigger on a sale of uh, iron or coal, uh, thermal coal or metallurgical, that we have that freight support to back up that trade before they make that particular, before they make that particular trade. So communication, hammering home, what's going on in these markets to our client base is just critical right now. So getting that communication out and making sure that they all know what's happening. Uh, infrastructure, Joe and I talked about on the podcast uh, last week uh, uh, is another big part of it. We're seeing strains all over the place, right? So understanding what's happening in the ports, understanding the constraints that we're seeing because of the infrastructure uh, infrastructure situation, uh, not just in North America, but throughout the globe, uh, key also, right? What ports to avoid? Where, what parts of the inland river system in the United States to avoid, all key.
1: You know, one thing that we've seen in some areas is this sort of like amplification effect, where if people are, say, if companies are, say, worried about their ability to source semiconductors, then maybe right. they'll make even larger orders for down the road so that they feel like they can get some. There's like some uncertainty about supply. Does that mm-hmm. is that create an issue with booking freight down the road? It's like, you know what? I don't know what I'm gonna need in September or October. October, but I'm going to try and buy some space now because I'm, you know, I I just want to get it. I want to make sure I can get on the ship, creating further logistical problems.
2: I think not not as much of an issue, Joe, not seeing, at least I'm not seeing that. Hmm. We're not seeing that as as a major issue. The focus right now. Is securing space for immediate immediate needs and short short uh, term short term uh, needs. There are we're working on some forward longer term contract business. For example, steel coming out of uh, Southeast Asia running into 2022. So we're trying to secure uh, that in uh, in long term contracts with some flexibility mm-hmm. uh, there. But no, we're not necessarily seeing situations where people are are making, say, let's use mm. the term ghost bookings, right? That they know, or that they think is a good chance that they will not need. It's not really gonna accomplish uh, much in, at least in the in the world of industrial commodities that we're dealing with. That's See, not. And
1: one other thing, it seems like, you know, how much, are these sort of seemingly isolated incidents, like the uh, blockage in the Suez, some Mm. of the uh, outbreaks Mm. that we've seen of COVID in some of the Chinese ports. How much do these sort of little idiosyncratic things at a time when the chain is already so stressed really compound and reverberate for several weeks after?
2: yeah uh yeah good question uh the suez situation it was was done in about a week uh when they when they cleared the ship it certainly caused some uh, some uproar you had ships uh, diverting to go around uh, around the cape around the south uh, southern tip of africa to avoid the avoid the canal turned out that was probably not the not the best move for those ships in, in terms of cost, considering how fast the canal was open. But what we're seeing in China right now with the uh, port of Yantian just outside of uh, Hong Kong and several other ports with the COVID situation uh, being, uh, uh, you know, having massive uh, delays. And now seeing container carriers uh, uh, avoid those ports, that's having some major disruptions. You, you have a situation that there's already a backlog, as Tracy knows, right, what we what we right. dealt with on the on the teddy bear uh, example, when you already had a situation where containers were getting left behind, now you have uh, ships just avoiding these ports altogether. So just really compounding the situation uh, greatly. There's a few good uh, pieces out uh, out in the media about uh, how many ships are sitting off at anchor at some of these ports. You could just oh, see yeah. them on marine traffic and so
1: forth. So. Audacity Capital could be the first venture capital fund focused on crypto startups and helmed by a black woman. The Los Angeles-based firm is going to invest in cryptocurrency-related startups led by entrepreneurs of black and African descent with a focus on decentralized finance and has raised an undisclosed sum from investors, including IDEO, CoLab Ventures, and Electric Capital. The fund plans to invest up to $100,000 each, in as many as three startups a quarter, so we caught up with the woman behind Audacity Capital, its founder and CEO, Ericon Abotekudo. We started by asking what opportunity she sees for her fund.
4: Yes. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. Fundamentally, we recognize that the next generation of the internet is being created today. And there are so many entrepreneurs from all over the world that have the great greatest vantage point to create the internet that needs to exist today. So we want to back them. And we recognize that there's a whole continent in Africa and so many different parts of the world that have overlooked and underestimated founders that can literally become the next geniuses to create the better internet, to create, create the better financial system and create better cultures for lives of people all mm. over the world. So we want to invest in them. Erica,
3: you're a woman who knows Africa. You used to be con- connecting there with the future of Africa. You connected investors with entrepreneurs. But you're a woman who's, I mean, you've traveled. You've been a jazz musician, I understand. You Shit. were at one yes. point really fo- tra- help, focused on helping find a cure for AIDS
4: in Brazil, South yes. Africa. What drew you to crypto? What got you investing in Ethereum? Yeah, well, fundamentally, I have been someone who's been overlooked by financial institutions my entire life. As an immigrant in the United States, my family has sent hundreds of thousands of dollars back to Africa every single year. And frankly, I can't walk into a traditional bank and be serviced for my needs to move money across continents and oceans. And so my understanding of blockchain and my understanding of crypto was that I could send money without intermediaries, including banks, to my family members in Nigeria without dealing with the incredible costs and the incredible challenges and, and frankly, inability to track my money effectively. And when I was living in Nigeria and literally it was at the beginning of a recession, which many countries around the world are experiencing today, I was not able to move my money in the local currency Mm. because it was deflating incredibly. And I couldn't even move it to the U.S. dollar because the the national government had said there's a freeze on the dollar in the nation and the dollar had become gold in Nigeria. And when I realized that And one of the largest black nations in the world, the biggest producer of oil in Africa and one of the biggest exports of intellectual capital had a currency that they couldn't rely on. I knew that we needed an alternative system. So I dabbled in Ethereum and Mm -hmm. eventually found that blockchain has created a way for us to literally move trillions of dollars around the world without the middlemen that we have to work around today. When you think
1: about like the types of apps or the types of companies that can allow normal people to sort of interact with crypto because it is extremely hard to wrap one's head around often and the apps are confusing and especially a lot of the DeFi apps still have a long way to go in terms of usability that sort of like the general public would be able to understand. What are the types of uh, solutions, or sorry, the types of like problems that you're looking uh, to see solved in the companies you're trying to find?
4: yeah so fundamentally things are challenging you're so right about that and guess what it is the perfect time to now create the layer that is accessible that is available and readily understandable by gen- the general mass public so we're looking to invest in companies that recognize that the infrastructure can be as complicated as it is but at the end of the day we need to communicate and get as close to the eight billion people on this planet so not only people have the opportunity to build wealth but they can do so in a way that they understand so we're excited to invest in companies that are considered dApps, decentralized Mm. apps, which are essentially layers on top of all of this funny sounding infrastructure that you all are hearing about today that essentially make you not even aware of what all of this technicality is and simply allow you to unwrap nicely and smoothly into this new internet with seamless efforts to build wealth and participate in new financial systems. So we're excited about those seamless um, apps and solutions that make uh, this infrastructure more accessible.
3: And, of course, focused on those that are being built by people of colour in particular, Erica And I think what's, what's so interesting, when we are lucky enough on this show to interview, for example, basketball stars, some celebrities who are people of colour who've got into crypto, got into NFTs, for example, and are really powerfully uh, passionate about getting people of color within it. They see an area that you don't need to be an accredited investor, that there are less blocks to actually getting in at an early stage to back these sorts of companies. How many people of color are building at Hmm. the moment? How many companies are there opportunities to put these $100,000 checks to work in?
4: Yeah, well, fundamentally, since you all did such a great job in breaking the story, we've had incredible inbound. And right now, there's a wonderful community called Crypto for Black Economic Empowerment, which includes 150 crypto all-stars from across 20 countries. And right there alone, there's about 70 companies that are worth making a solid investment today that are seeking some of the largest amounts of capital in the space right now. So right now, we recognize that there's easily 100 companies that we can look to invest in. We want to make one to three a quarter. And frankly, with the visibility and representation matters so much, with so many more people now being able to see, wow, I can do that. I can raise $10 million and build something that has a $15 billion market cap in four years. I want to go and do that as well. So we also recognize that this fund is really going to signal to so many black and brown people from all over the world that they can be the leaders in the new internet and that we can be a check that is the first one to go into them and say, we believe in you and we validate your genius. Well, Arakan, I'm so pleased that Olga,
3: our colleague over in Bloomberg News, broke this story, brought you to our thank attention. So and much. we want to thank you so much for coming on, on your birthday. You. Go out hey. there, celebrate Woo-hoo! it. <laughs> it's you're my already... 30th, y'all. Yes, 30, amazing. <laughs>
1: Now this week, Fed Chairman Jay Powell was back on Capitol Hill, testifying before the House Select Committee on the coronavirus crisis. And he sounded quite dovish after striking a more hawkish tone than many expected at his recent news conference following the FOMC rate decision. The dollar fell on his comments, and we got reaction from Win Thin, the global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Herrmann. We started by asking Win how much of the current trajectory of Fed policy is consistent with the framework laid out at Jackson Hole last year.
6: To me, it's entirely consistent. I know there's been some confusion amongst the, the media and the market, but you know, to me, uh, it's prudent if you're going barreling down um, an unknown highway at, a, at full speed and you come up on a curve. I think most drivers, who are Putin would probably take the foot off the gas a little bit. And it's a simple analogy, but that's the way I view uh, this tapering talk. We're emerging from a pandemic. You know, we think that there's no you know wage pressures and what have you, but. As Mr. Powell said, the inflation has been much higher than expected, and it could be more persistent. So, to me, I think it's prudent for the Fed officials to at least say, "Look, we're talking about talking about tapering." And you know, as Mr. Bullard confirmed earlier this week, uh, Mr. Powell has opened those discussions. Um, you know, people focusing on the August uh, Jackson poll maybe the September fmc but you know, make no mistake that we are at an inflection point. Um, you can look around the world, you go down the checklist, but. Uh, global liquidity is, is, uh, has reached an inflection point. I think that's something that markets are, are not quite um, taking into account yet.
3: OK. Where then goes the great U.S. dollar? Does it push higher in the fact that we're expecting some sort of rate hikes mm. n- sooner than expected, even if it's a couple of years off? Or does it go lower because, well, yields, you know, we start to see it all being priced in and we worry more about a deficit?
6: So, uh, obviously, uh, economists such as myself try and look at, you know, historic examples. Unfortunately, right now, we only have a sample size of one, and that's mm-hmm. from the great financial crisis. Um, the Fed was the first to aggressively go to zero rates, QE, and the dollars typically suffered. Um, it's sort of in that early part. We saw that in, during the pandemic this past year. But it's sort of first in, first out. The Fed was also set the groundwork for a really a, a rip roaring econ- uh, recovery for the U.S. economy back uh, in 2009, 2010, um, we started talking about tapering that the U.S. economy outperformed and the dollar started to get some traction. So, again, you know, it's not much of a sample to go on, but it's the best we've got. And I, I still see this roadmap being played out. The Fed has a similar sort of roadmap for tapering and eventually hiking rates. Obviously, timing is open to question, but, you know, you know the sort of the playbook and the roadmap are out there. Um, the tip pandemic, obviously, is something we've never, ever had to deal with uh, in terms of policy and right. what have you. But Mr. Powell has done, a, you know, to me, a terrific job. Um, you know, navigating these, these things. But again, I, I think prudence te- says that you know we shouldn't go full speed ahead when, when we're going into a very a sort of unknown um, territory.
1: So the one sort of risk, and the one thing that Powell in his press conference last week did express some possible anxiety over, not, uh, though not too much, is could this period of elevated inflation now could it last longer? Could it could transitory inflation? turn into more uh, elevated, sustained inflation, maybe inflation expectations become unanchored. Do you see anything out there, either in the data itself or surveys or anything else that uh, causes you to be concerned that this will be something other than sort of inflation related to the reopening?
6: Yes, that's a great question. Um, You know, to me, I have more questions than answers these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, but I have to ask the right questions. And to me, the the question, I think that's the million dollar question is, what's going on in the labor market? You know, we've had this sort of anecdotal evidence that, oh, people staying home um, because of enhanced benefits. But the San Francisco Fed did a study uh, last month that suggests about 1 in 28 are, are, are sort of doing this. So it's a very small amount uh, that, that, you know, that are sort of in this sort of thematic, um, oh, we're staying home because we're being paid to stay home. It's, it's you know, we're hearing all sorts of uh, shortage of labor, um, people who are not going to, into low-wage uh, industries, leaving, moving up. So to me, there's, there is some potential wage pressure. I'm, again, I'm not an inflationista by any stretch, but there's so much unknown. To me, the labor market is the key. The, we, you know, economists all recognize that um, really the, the linchpin to higher inflation is higher wage inflation. Um, you know, and so that's, that's the, to me, the, the biggest question. We won't know. We won't know this for several months. And that, that is really, to me, I think what is, you know, I think it's sort of risky for markets that we, we sort of have bought into this uh, narrative. that it's, it's temporary, it's bottlenecks. But as you point out, Joe, it, it's, you know, what's transitory? It's three months, six months, nine months? You can, you can make a case for, again, as Mr. Powell did, that this could go on for, for longer than expected. And I would say the bond market has been incredibly patient, you know, with 10-year 150 when we've got 4 PCE up 3.4% possibly on Friday. Um, so, so many moving parts. Right. But if I had to say anything, you know, the risks to me are more inflationary than deflationary. At this point.
3: And does that go worldwide, given this is so much about people being able to come out, pent-up demand. I understand, of course, the rollout of the vaccine isn't similar everywhere. We don't see certain countries getting back online as quickly as perhaps we'd anticipated. But it does feel like inflation is something the Bank of England, for example, is having to tackle too. Where else do we see these narratives playing out?
6: So, you know, it's really great you mentioned that, Caroline. I look at the central banks around the world, I really see diversions. The countries that went into this pandemic strong are the central banks that are actually talking about or thinking about or have already removed the accommodation. That would be the Bank of Canada have already tapered. Uh, RBA is probably next. The Fed is talking about it. Uh, Nordisk Bank has flagged a rate hike, so has the RBNZ. All those economies were doing well before the pandemic and the sort of first, you know, sort of recover. Bank of Japan, ECB, SNB, Swiss National Bank, uh, the Swedish Riksbank, they were all battling deflation going into the pandemic. And as a result, they, they sort of entered this um, period in a very weakened state, and so those central banks are, are nowhere near removing accommodation. So this divergence, I think, is going to become clearer and clearer, um, you know, as, as we sort of move through this year, the second half this year. Um, but you know, it's all being driven by underlying economic fundamentals. Um, those that have mm. good, strong growth, I think those currencies will outperform. Bank, like you mentioned, Bank of England, um, you know, the, they were the first to sort of get this vaccine rollout really going, and the, the numbers out of the UK are blockbuster. Um, so really and again it's sort of you know sort of the haves and have nots so you've got to sort of keep an eye on on how these things go
1: And we're getting a bit of a buyer strike in the housing market. Data showing that sales of new homes dropped unexpectedly in May with high prices continuing to weigh on affordability and builders rushing to replenish inventory. This is coming as rents continue to rise as well. We got some perspective from Alan Detmeister, economist at UBS. We started by asking Alan if we should be expecting a surge in rent inflation later this year. To
7: some extent, yes, we've been seeing some very strong increases in rents for new listings. So in private sector data from apartment lists, Zillow, Yardie Matrix, CoreLogic, Single Family Rent Index, those have moved up very strongly in recent months. They were a little weak early in the, in the pandemic, but they have moved up very strongly in the last few months. And those take some time to get into the CPI basket. Usually on average, you know, uh, six to 12 months before those get into the CPI basket, because the CPI is not looking at new rents, rents for new leases. They're looking at the average stock of rent being paid, and they take a six-month moving average.
3: Okay, Alan, I have to say, anecdotally... I feel it. I've just been looking for a new apartment and I was thinking I would catch some sort of uh, deal and I had significantly missed it by several months, I understand. The whole world suddenly wants to come back to New York City and prices had driven higher. Is this the case, though, for for everywhere at the moment? We certainly feel it in certain hubs as as people bring back to work and the office space. But is this a, a purely New York kind of dynamic or where is it happening in the rest of the U.S.?
7: The monthly increases have been the strongest in, in New York and some of these areas where we've seen uh, the early weakness, New York, Boston, San Francisco, and in the inner cities, not in the further out areas. The further out areas did see some big, strong increases and um, earlier in the pandemic, but the most recent monthly ones have been more in the inner city areas. Over the last 12 months, though, you see it more kind of in some of the areas that weren't affected earlier in the pandemic. Say Phoenix has had some large increases over the last 12 months, but not as much in the last couple.
1: So then what does this mean then for headline inflation? It's like we can look at 4.7 or 5 percent and say, you know, what, this is just about a few distinct categories, some supply chain hiccups and so forth, and we can expect them to resolve. But again, OER, really big component what are what are you seeing in terms of the pressure that that's going to put on uh, the headline measures?
7: Yeah, so those will put a big upward pressure on CPI, particularly the core CPI, where right. owners' equivalent rent, tenants' rents are 40% of the index, a lot less on the Fed's preferred PCE inflation measure, mm. where they get about half the weight, actually a little less than half the weight. So there's not gonna be as much upward pressure on the Fed's measure, but there will be on the um what you know financial markets and tips are based off of the CPI. Mm. So that's going to lead to a little disconnect next year. We actually expect the spread between those two majors to open up to about 120 basis points by early next year where the average is something like 30 basis points. So we expect to see actually some pretty weak numbers on the Fed's preferred core PCE inflation gauge because you got weakness in in some of the core goods prices likely to be seen when we get into the fourth quarter into next
1: year.
3: And to that point, Alan, therefore, is it right for the Fed to look through what is perhaps now a sudden flight back to inner cities and maybe that will be transitory? And I'm interested in what happens to all the suburbs that suddenly saw ramp up in rents as everyone wanted to get out of the cities. Do they then come back down? Does it offset things over time? And does all of this prove... Transitory, or is the only way up?
7: Well, the the rents measure, particularly in the in the core, uh, the way the BLS and the BEA, the official price indices measure it, that tends to be very slow moving. So it's probably not going to get too strong until we're t- into the fourth quarter of this year or into next year. But since it's so slow moving, it's going to be really hard to tell. Is this just a transitory pickup and going back to, you know, everybody coming back into the inner cities, or is it really something more persistent? And so that we're going to have to follow some of these uh, other gauges like you showed, the, the, um, the Zillow and the apartment list measure and see if those price increases start coming back down. We haven't seen it yet. The last few months, as you showed, we're just booming you, in those indexes.
1: Do you have a, fork, a specific forecast for where it's going to go? We were just looking at the chart and so, so so far below. And even pre-crisis, I mean, it was well above, you know, we were in the mid-threes for rent increases. Now we're at 2.1%. Do you see it getting back to those levels? Do you see it shooting, uh, overshooting sort of pre-crisis paces, the pre-crisis pace of year-over-year change? Like, how far do you think it could go based on some of the other indicators you're looking at?
7: Yeah, so for right now, we're expecting to have that 12 month measure to peak out well above where it was wow. uh, at the pre-crisis, up to about four to four and a quarter percent. But I think with the numbers that we've seen on those um, those other private sector indexes, yeah. the risks are to the upside and sooner. We've got, you know, the f- official indexes peaking out middle to late next year and it could occur much quicker and much higher than we're expected if we still can see those see those rents for new leases moving Mm. up as strongly as they have the last couple months
3: can you dispel the own myth i've created in my own head (laughs) or not as the case may be but what shows up when when all these real estate brokers were offering basically just free months but actually didn't change the level of rent how does that feed into the data does that get picked up does it look as though the rents have never changed
7: In theory, they should be picked up what they try to do is if they either giving you a month free rent, they will, uh, the BLS will take it that you're paying five sixth rent on the place for the first six months. But some of those things in their free months get pretty complicated where you can pick different months and in the year or take half rent for a couple months at some point. So it's not clear that the 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 cpi really gets all of that free month uh those concessions off but they they attempt to try and get them
1: let's just talk real briefly elsewhere uh, within the basket so again uh we know the contours of current inflation we know the fed stance We know the stance of the market and the market's sort of not particularly showing any signs of whether you look at break-evens and so forth of being too concerned. The transitory story, well accepted. Do you see any evidence to doubt that overall?
7: No, as as you mentioned, it's been a fairly narrow increase that we've been seeing um, in recent months, particularly used cars, uh, new cars, some strength in household furnishings and supplies um burn furniture in particular and and things like airfares which are still well below their pre-pandemic level like 12 and percent and those are probably still expected to see some strength over the next few months but that's just getting back to where they were and for those other things you'll see a movement away from the the goods-based consumption that we've really seen since the pandemic started down back to services-based consumption and that will probably decrease demand and costs for a lot of those goods. But over the next few months, I still expect to see some strong inflation numbers, probably higher than than, uh, what consensus is, what Mm. the Fed's expecting. And this could lead them to be even more hawkish by the time we hit the September meeting.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
0: The countdown has begun.